I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. You know, welcome to The Literary Life. We are um, doing this podcast from my home because all of us are sheltering in place. And we normally do these live and in person, not live, but in person. Uh, But this has given me the opportunity actually to meet some people who aren't coming through Miami in the near future. So it's given me an opportunity today to speak to Nick Flynn. Um, Nick, welcome. Welcome to Literary Life. Great to be here with you in Miami, virtually in Miami. Thanks. And where are you now? Uh, about two hours north of New York City. We, you know, we're based in Brooklyn, and uh, we fled a month ago up to upstate New York. So it's two hours north in the Hudson, a town called Red Hook. It's beautiful there. What city are you in? We're, we're in Red Hook. Oh, you're in it's Red Hook. It's next to Bard. It's next to Bard. Of College. course. Of course. Yeah, Bard College is right here, so... Sure. It's sort of, so it's on the Hudson side? Uh, Well, it's on the the, the west, the east side of the Hudson. Yeah. My wife and I have a dream of, I've always loved it up there. Um, When I was in high school, I took a trip, went up to the Catskill area for the very first time and ended up in Phoenicia, New York. And always mm-hmm. said that at some point in my life, I'm a, I was born in Miami Beach, raised in Miami Beach, but always felt that one day I'd have a reason to spend a lot of time up in that whole area. I just yeah. love it. 
it's nice. It's nice, you know, nice in the summer up here. It's nicer, you know. Are you able to get some work done, some writing? No, no. In this month, no, nothing. No. <laughs> right. My mind no, isn't no. working that way. What? When I talk, when I think of your 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 writing career, and I've followed it, and knowing you were going to be on the show, I even went even in more depth. Um, collage. It's interesting that collage is always what came to mind for me. Um, it always seemed really impossible to limit you as a writer to just one lane. You know, you're not just a, a memorist. You're not just a poet, an essay, an essayist, or an artist. Um, but it just seems like your interests take you down so many different roads. And layered onto that interest is interest in film and photography and music and art. So when I was sent the book Stay, which I will hold up right now for Carmen to see. I hold mine up too with the, the title The Wrong Way. Oh yeah, how did that happen? Tell me, what happened with that? It was, it was I had to work with uh, the, the publisher connected me with a design team, a design studio that I went to for like six months to work in the book, to do layout of every page. And, uh, and uh, they came up with it. They came up with this idea to make the title upside down. And I was just like, and I sort of, at that point I ended up trusting them because they seemed to have good design instincts. So uh, yeah. Some people call it yats. <laughs> but is yours right side up or you just were holding it upside down? Well, it, 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 the title's right side up, but then my name is upside down, so. That's right, oh, I see, right, right. Yeah, you know, so, want to do yeah, yeah, yeah. But so you no, know, what was so interesting in reading the book and reading, I think it's on one of the pages in which you talk about almost in essence the genesis of the book, it's basically collage. It's basically all yeah. these different aspects of your life put together in a way that gives me the whole, an idea. It made me really understand you as a whole. I shouldn't say understand because I don't understand. I wouldn't pretend to understand you. But, but it gives me a real sense of who you are in a really beautiful way. So tell me about how this book came to be. Um, well, I've done, you know, the book contains, I think by the, the genesis of it was for me was the collaborations I do with other artists. Uh, and from every book I've written, there's been some element of working with another artist at some point in the making of the book, maybe just on one poem, maybe with a composer. Uh, I've worked with a composer for now 12 years and Every book I've done, there's been something I've run through him, and we've we've, we've filtered it through musically. Uh, some of the red composer. Talk about the composer a little. His name's Guy Barash. He's a uh, he showed up in America like in 12 years ago, and he he sought me out. He found me because I, I had a poem in um, a book of political poems about the Iraq War. I guess or sort of these anti maybe anti poems or something. Um, called State of the Union, and uh, he found one of my poems, and he just contacted me and uh, asked if he could turn that poem into a song. Uh, and he had already done it. He and I said, well, yeah, sure. He goes, well, I'm good, I've done it. And he, he gave me the song. Uh, and he, we, we've become fast friends. I just spoke to him, you know, an hour ago. We're, we're, you know, over this course of this time, we've become very, very close. And 
it's just like, I just think every poet should have a composer and every composer should have a poet and every filmmaker should have a poet and every dancer should have a poet. Every poet should have a dancer. Every, you know, I just think we should all like, you should have one, one that's your main person, you know, to like, to do stuff with. And then, then you can put it all together at some point, like in this book, you can put them all together in one place, you know? Uh, so how does the poetry and how do you work with the composer? Is it, does he, is he, do you put out collaborations that are recorded collaborations of your poetry and his music? Sure. Yeah. We, we, you know, I think he released a CD, but it's, it's all, all of our, all of our collaborations uh, a couple of years ago called facts about water, uh, which you can find on YouTube and or on Spotify. And, um, uh, this last poetry book I did just before this one, which is called I will destroy you. Right. Uh, every, every, really, really every poem, cool. in this book, every, every poem in the book was, um, was revised and, uh, filtered through a band, uh, that I have, uh, and, and Guy is part of the band. Guy is, uh, uh, he's, he's the sort of the, the Eno type. He does electronics. Right. Uh, he, he does electronics. And, uh, and I had two other members of the band, uh, Simi Stone, who is, she's, when she's not, she's also in the band, The New Pornographers. And uh, when she's not on tour or she has her own, her own music that she does. And then Philip Marshall, who's a really old friend of mine who introduced my wife and I actually. So the, the four of us had a band called uh, Killdeer. And all the poems in this book, not all of them, but a good percentage of them, probably all of them at some point were performed with that band. And that was part of the revision process. We would perform them and that would sort of determine, uh, so there's this, there's this musical underbeat to all the poems, which you might not notice just reading it, but I, I, if it wasn't there, I think it would be noticeable. Yeah, no, and I, I've heard a, a lot of the music, and it's marvelous music. Um, the the music of Kildeer is is just amazing. I think being Flynn, I saw it a while ago, but I found the music to be really kind of remarkable. Was some of that music yours as well? In the no, movie, that was all. Um, uh, was a badly drawn boy. Uh, badly drawn. Yeah, badly drawn boy, and he he's someone. Uh, that had, had worked with the director before on, he worked on About a Boy uh, with Paul White. They, they, they worked together on that. And so he brought him back, Paul brought him back to do the music for this one, to do for being Flynn. Uh, and I thought, yeah, I thought it worked out great. So, yeah. I've read a lot of your, you know, a lot of the essays and memoirs about your early life, which was, you know, which was tough, which you had a very, you know, tough growing up and, and a tough life and to a large, to a large extent. Um, what do you think and what, where did this kind of collage notion of being interested in so many different things come from? I mean, there's so many writers that I've talked to who from the time they were young, they knew they were going to be a novelist or they knew they were going to be a poet or they only write YA children's books your interests are so broad in where did, how did that personality develop? How did that, that worldview develop in some way? You know, one thing I, I you know, you know, my, my childhood was, you know, tough in some ways and also it was very, you know, privileged in many ways also. 
you know, I grew up in uh, Massachusetts in a town on the coast, a very beautiful town, you know, uh, you know, it was a single mother. So there was some certainly struggle with financial struggle. Uh, And yeah, there was, there there was things that happened, but there, you know, I don't think it's outside the realm. It's not an exceptionally, uh, uh, you know, deprived childhood. Uh, compared to what's I mean, compared to what's happening right now with like you know twenty million people out of work and you know food banks with ten thousand cars lined up, it just breaks my heart. I mean, it's just terrible, terrible what's yeah. happening right now. Um, but that said, like I don't know what like we didn't have much in the way of art when I was growing up. There wasn't like it wasn't like an arty house. It was it was a real working class house. We had a couple books around, uh, some music. Uh, my mother got married, remarried when I was twelve to a this Vietnam vet who was kind of a great guy, kind of a maniac. Uh, but he brought like really good music into our house. It was like 1972 and he brought this amazing music into our house that we had just never seen before. Uh, and, and that, that helped. My mother was also young. So she was, she was, you know, into, you know, somewhat into the culture, like the sixties, it didn't feel like if you see a, a movie about Woodstock or something, or, you know, our house didn't feel like that. It was really working class and really just like, you know, but there was a, you know, the music would filter in. And so um, music was a big part of my life, like all through my 20s. Uh, not, I never could play it or I never was in a band, uh, but I, I just, you know, lived at clubs and, and went to shows and did that. Uh, that was my entertainment. And then into my, but, but I also met some artists. Like when I was in my 20s, I, I met my first artist. Like in, um, I remember an early friend was a poet. And I just like, you know, an early girlfriend, and I just knew that, like, I just had never met someone who could say they were an artist. I mean, it, it, never, it never occurred to me you could just say you were an artist and just do it. You know, she had come from a more a comfortable background, so maybe she felt okay to do that. Like, you couldn't do that from the background I'm from. You wouldn't say you're an artist. Uh, but I was really drawn to that, and I really did enjoy language. Um, and then as it went on, like, I, for a job, I had to get a job um, in college, a work-study job, and I ended up I think very smartly getting a job at the photo lab. So that sort of introduced me to photography rather than just doing something that was boring. Like I just thought I'd do something that would, would be interesting. So I, I got a job at the photo lab. And, was this and in Boston? Did you go to school in Boston? <laughs> UMass Amherst. Yeah. Right. So Massachusetts, yeah, the state school. Um, so I got to do, you know, get interested in photography that way, listening to music, uh, you know, and then, moved to New York and just the, the people I was with, I got to meet like people who were really working artists uh, and, and, you know, date them, you know, I had a, a, a girlfriend who was a dancer and I was in the dance world for a couple of years and, uh, you know, uh, became very good friends with the, you know, filmmakers along the way. And it just, it was just the friends, like, like whoever, like I was sort of, uh, uh, most of almost all the collaborations that I do are all from friends. You know, it's just people that I like that I, that I hang out with. And then we just decided at some point to do something together. So uh, this is a world that you were just, you were just naturally drawn to that world. It was a world that you felt very comfortable in. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe because of limitations too. Like I wasn't drawn to the business world at all. I wasn't, right. I had no facility in that in the business world or I didn't have the, the stomach for it. Uh, I wasn't drawn to, uh, uh, the sciences, especially, I like science. I really admire scientists. I love talking with scientists and reading science things, but I'm just not, my mind isn't mathematical in that way. Um, uh, it's just almost process of, this is what I could do. And these are the people that I could do it with. 
with. So uh, I think that's why I'm so drawn. I'm so drawn to your work because I think I made very similar decision when I stepped out to start a bookshop. I didn't. I knew I didn't have um, probably the the artistic skill. I know I don't have the artistic skills that you had, but I wanted to be in that world, in that sort of that milieu you know, the world of people creating and that sort of thing. And for me, producing, you know, getting people into the bookshop, producing events, it has that same kind, it assuages that same sure. kind of creative urge in a sense. Yeah, so, that's part of it. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. yeah and, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, I, I always like to say it's, it's um, you know, I'm just the product of being an English major in the uh, late early 70s when I didn't know what the hell to do after yeah. that. Today, I was supposed to start a, an immersive performance, which is mentioned in the book, in, in Stay, on um, a, a, a version of William Blake that I've been working on for six or seven years, uh, uh, called The Nine Dreams. So it was gonna be in these abandoned silos in Houston, Guy Barash and this, another, another musician who goes by the name of Veller. Uh, did the music for it. So we have the music all done. We have a director. We had like a chorus of people singing. And Lily, my wife, was going to be a, a hologram in it. I mean, it was, it was all this like huge production. Like, you know, it had funding. And that was going to start tomorrow. That was going to, oh. you know, we would have been finishing our tech today and then starting the presentation tomorrow. Um, and, yes. I, you know, that, that was a loss. That was a loss. But it, to me, it felt very political. The Blake felt like wildly political. Um, in, in yeah, a very, what's that? I said, you're right. Blake is, you know, when you really think about what he was writing about. Yeah. In a wildly oblique way. I mean, he, but he touches on, you know, ecological devastation. He touches on uh, authoritarianism. He touches on slavery. Uh, you know, it's all like in this sort of like this, this cosmology that he presents in this. It's a, it's a Blake that people don't read that much. It's his unfinished epic uh, apocalyptic masterpiece called Vala. It's like mm. nine volumes, uh, thousands of lines of poetry in each volume. Uh, he's worked on it for 10 years and then abandoned it. And very, very few people have read it. <laughs> it's not like a book people read, but I've distilled it down to this, like each, each book down to like uh, two or three pages. And it goes to this whole performance. It's like hour-long performance. But and, one then, day, and so it'll be filmed and then... Where, 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 so it's going to be a live immersive performance. So we have to figure out what to do now. You know, people are going to be like in these silos, in these abandoned rice silos in Houston. Wow. Like going through them. So, oh, yeah, so, so we have to figure it out the other, what we do now. Oh, well, we'll have to keep, I want to, we should, I'll have to make it a trip when, you know, I'll probably drive there since I won't be flying for, for a while. But it's, yeah, well, I hope it, I hope it. I hope it comes back. Like you say, some things won't come back, you know, so it might not happen. I mean, it's possible it won't happen. Well, then, you know, then you'll document it. It'll exist in, in a book of some sort. I have all the pieces of it. I have the music and, I'm, you know, Guy and I, I'm going to be going on these, a little Zoom tour for the book. I mean, I've done a couple, but I'm going to do it with Guy for the next couple of them uh, for a bookstore in, uh, uh, you know, we're doing Books or Magic. Uh, Good. We're doing uh, the word play, which is out in Minnesota, a book festival in Minnesota. Right. Um, we're doing 
there's a couple other ones we're doing. So, and I, he and I, are, that's what we're talking about, how to like present a little bit of the Blake, like with the music. I just want to have the music be heard while I read some Blake. You know, it won't be the same thing, but uh, we'll get a, a taste of it though, so. No, I love that idea. That's terrific. Yeah. I have to figure a way to get you down to Miami as well, or do it no, Zoom, no. or maybe when this all this ends a little bit, we'll get you down and do something. I love Miami, you know, I love Miami. Have you spent time in Miami? Have you? Yeah, yeah, I've been there a lot, yeah, yeah. Many nice. Yeah, I know yeah. you're teaching. You're teaching for part of the time at uh, in Houston, right? Uh, yeah, teaching Houston. I'm teaching there right now. I'll be teaching there this afternoon via Zoom. You know. And you oh, you're doing it by Zoom. Is it is it Rice or the University of Houston? Which University of Houston? Yeah. University of Houston. There. That's great. So, um, you know, to, to go back a little bit. Um, I remember as a bookseller when another bullshit night in Suck City came out. Um, it was one of the most talked about books that we had in Galley at the time that it came out. I remember, I believe it was published by Norton, right? The Norton, yeah, Norton was the publisher, and they sent out a lot of galleys, and we were reading. It was passed around the bookshop, and then I went to some gathering, and other booksellers were talking about it. Um, and it, it really, it really had an impact. Um, how did it feel like from where you sat? What did it feel like um, from your point of well, view? I mean, it really, I, had, I published like, I think that was my fourth book. That was my fourth book. But the other books were, there was two books of poetry and a, and a, a manual for teaching poetry to young people, like a nonfiction textbook thing. Um, and so I, I wasn't really prepared for like, a, a full-on, uh, you know, big publication. Uh, it was uh, it was wild. It was a strange, very strange experience. It was also sold in you know fifteen countries, and I ended up being on the road for like two years. Uh, you know, just traveling like you know every. Uh, it, it really felt like I, I read. I did a reading somewhere every night for two years, uh, uh, basically, um, and. Uh, you know, that, it was, it's probably not the healthiest thing to do for, for, for me. You know, it just doesn't feel living in hotel rooms and, you know, just flying and not really knowing when you wake up in the morning with your eyes closed, having no idea what city you're in. Right, right. Uh, it, it was destabilizing. It was pretty destabilizing. Well, and also it was about yourself. I mean, so well, it too, been yeah. extremely emotional, I imagine, with all the questions, probably getting the same questions every night or at least similar ones. But it also felt like I was supposed to be some, because you've written a book that you're supposed to be some sort of a, you've, you've come through something and you're some kind of an expert or you can give advice or something. And, you know, I just felt like at certain moments, I felt like, you know, just a total mess. It seems like an extreme story on the surface. It's, you know, homeless father, suicidal mother. But it really is just like just trying to understand your parents, like trying to figure out who your parents are, where you're from and how you, why you are like you are. Uh, so that, I think that was a thing that people, anyone could relate to, I think. So, you know. Absolutely. And so how did the film come to be? How did that happen? You know, the, the book took seven years to write. And then uh, uh, after the book came out, it took seven years to get the film made. Um, uh, and that was just, you know, it, it got optioned right away. And, and hard got optioned. Um, and that Did it get optioned by Paul or by a producer or? It got optioned by a producer and then probably we, we got Paul, 
a few months later. Uh, we were looking at different directors and uh, we got Paul a few months later. Uh, Michael Costigan optioned it. Uh, who did, he had just done Brokeback Mountain. And, uh, wow. you know, so he, he was, and he's a great guy too. He's, I feel like very lucky with the whole, the whole film process because it was, uh, I think, as good as it could be. Uh, the, uh, um, you know, like I'm, I think all the people I worked with are great. So I feel very, very lucky. Well, it's an amazing film. And those, anyone who's not seen it should really see it. It's got Robert De Niro, Paul Dano, Julianne Moore, your wife, Lily, is in it. Well, well, yeah, I write about the whole making of the, you know, making of the film in uh, In your in next memoir. In the other book, right. The reenactments, yeah, the reenactments is about, like, making, partially about making the film. And, you know, there's a chapter in that of De Niro wanting to meet my father and going to meet him and uh, while he's in a nursing home. And, you know, he's much, to, my father's much diminished at that point, so he doesn't have the same sort of, like, you know, fierceness and rage. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was probably a couple of years before he died. Um, and, uh, uh, but De Niro met him and he just, he really studied him. He really like sort of got something like, you know, my father didn't pay attention to De Niro at all. And just like rambled on and talked <laughs> sort of, you know, for like an hour without even acknowledging De Niro in any sense at all. And then, uh, uh, you know, so De Niro just sort of took that, then I, so I wrote, De Niro asked me, because there weren't these long monologues with my father. It was very short. Uh, the, the script had very just, De Niro just, you know, giving sort of, you know, back and forth dialogue. And De Niro asked if, it, if I could produce, like, these two, one or two page monologues that was in my father's style. So I did that. I went home and wrote these monologues that are in the film. So. Oh, they were great. They were really great. And he just um, nailed them. He would just come in and just nail them. He would just have like these two-page monologues, just like just and just like just go off on them. It was great. Yeah. And I'd love to know. And I and I watched a lot of it, which is Darwin's Nightmare, yeah, uh, which yeah. you were involved with. And you have this great, the best credit I've ever seen, where you're called a field poet. I know. Uh, and I what, wanted. What is a field poet? I, I I was pushing Paul Weitz to give me that credit for. Uh, uh, being Flynn also, but they were like, they just sort of rolled their eyes. I said, no, no, you should be executive producer. I'm like, I'd rather be field poet. <laughs> but they, I should have stood my ground. I wish I was always a field poet. Um, field poet comes from um, the, the Vietnamese, uh, you know, for their long history in any military campaign they had in any unit, military unit that went out would have one person in the unit that was called the field poet. And that person's job was to write a poem that commemorated what had happened that day, every day, and would uh, you know present it. Uh, it was sort of to give you know meaning and to give shape uh, to uh, what was happening to chaos. Uh, and so it felt closest to when I was asked in Darwin's Nightmare what credit I wanted. It just seemed like that's what I did on the film. Like down in we we're down in Africa, we we're you know Lake Victoria filming, and it was just. And then also even in the uh, in the editing room for like the next couple of years. Uh, that's what I did. I just gave notes and wrote, wrote things and tried to sort of make sense of it all. So, how did that? How did you come to get involved with that? It's, yeah, it's, it's just a coincidences or something. Like I was, I, I had a grant and I, I told, I had a really dear friend who, who was had been working in Tanzania for many years, and I was going to go see her. I got this grant that uh, a travel grant, and I was going to go base myself in Rome. 
and then go down to Tanzania. It was going to be part of the, the, the trip I took. Uh, and I told someone else that, and when I told her that, she just, her ex-boyfriend was the director of Darwin's Nightmare. And she said, oh, well, my, you know, you have to meet Hubert then. He's making a film in Tanzania. And, you know, people would say, I wasn't, I wasn't the type always to like just follow up with that and like get given a phone number and call some stranger and say, hi, you know, but Hubert was, the director was that kind of guy. So he ended up in Rome one night and was showing, trying to raise some money for the film and just called me up and invited me over. We just became friends. We just like, and I ended up going down to Tanzania and then worked on the film for a long time. And it's a great story. I mean, it's a shot story and it's a precursor of a lot of what's happening now. The different chapters that you did in Stay, um, you know, Begin, Sleeping Beauty, The Mother, Nebuchadnezzar, The Father, <laughs> Bewilderment, Archive. I mean, it makes, it's perfectly, it's a, you know, you look at it, you open it up and you go, now what am I looking at? And then there's an order to the chaos that's really beautiful in this book. It was really, really easy. It was so immersive. It was really easy to get immersed in it. And I also love the fact at the end of each piece, you put where it came from as well, which I really So it kind of talked about the collaboration. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, it was, you know, to figure that out, this is sort of, is maybe a template for the other books in this series. This is a you know, series put together by, uh, started by Michael Zilka, a new press. You know, he did the first book was about his friend, Glenn O'Brien, who also had a relationship, a writer who had a relationship to visual culture. Right. He did, he had a TV show in the seventies called TV party. He wrote like for a lot of magazines and, uh, criticism. criticism. So, you know, when I, when I looked at Glenn's work, when, when Michael and I were trying to conceive of what the press would be, uh, uh, I just thought this would be a good place for this kind of book too. Like I said, well, Glenn is doing something with visual work. I can do, I can do a template of it to see how we can lay this out. So. Yeah, it's called Z Press, right? Z Press. Yeah, Z Books. I mean, Z Books, Z Books. And, um, you know, those of you who, um, who are sheltering in place and don't have a bookstore open, make sure that you buy it from uh, one of your, your favorite indie bookstores who I'm sure are working online. It's called Stay. It's by Nick Flynn. And you can get it at, uh, you can get it through bookshop.org as well. You know, being sheltered in place, um, I've been able, you know, I've spent a lot of my time kind of doing deep dives into different people for some reason. And, you know, someone that I've always loved I've always loved his work, and he just happened to die during this period. It was John Prine? I don't know oh, if yeah. you feel about him, but yeah, love, love John Prine. Yeah, but, you know, in reading your stay, maybe it's because these were two things that I just got very immersed in. But I think you both come from very different points of view. Maybe not points of view, but your 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 art is very different. But both of you, what I appreciate so much is a sense of humanity that's so easily expressed in both of your works. You know, it's not forced. It comes so naturally. And there's also a kind of authenticity to both of you. But even more than that, and now talking to you, you know, talking to you like this, there's a kind of likability, which 
I think is so engaging in both of your works. And when you read about what people are saying about John Prine, it's exactly the way he was. His work was, there was no back door to John Prine, you know, yeah. or backstage, it was who he was. And I get the sense that's the same with you as well. You're so out there and your work is so genuine. But would you be able to read a couple of poems since it's National Poetry Month? Sure, yeah. Um, I, I, I thought of a couple when you would asked me ahead of time. Um, there's one in Stay that I thought I'd read. But this is a poem from that book, the B book uh, that I talked about, about the uh, Blind Huber, my second book of poetry. It's wow. called Hive. And one of the conceits of the book is that it's a series of persona poems where everything speaks. It's sort of like a transcendental type thing where everything in the world speaks. So the bees are speaking and the hive is speaking and the beekeepers are speaking. Um, what would you do inside me? You would be utterly lost. Labyrinthine comb, each corridor identical, a funhouse there, a bridge, worker, knit to worker, a span you can't cross. On the other side, the queen, a fortune of honey. Once we filled an entire house with it, built the comb between floorboard and joist, slowly at first. The constant buzz kept the owners awake, then louder until honey began to seep from the walls, swell the door frames, our gift. They had to burn the house down to rid us. Hmm. Oh, so wonderful. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's a creepy page. It's like, it's uh, yeah. strange. It, it, you know, when you juxtapose, when you get to juxtapose these images against the poem, like the, those right. two never went together, but in, in the laying out of the book, I just realized like that would be, it just makes it a whole nother thing in between those two. It creates this whole other energy in between really them. Perfect. Should I read another one? Yes, I'd love you to. I'll start this up. This is Novella and uh, Guy Barash uh, performing uh, the sixth dream, the sixth dream of Blake's Vala. Queen of these dreadful rivers, speak. Let me hear thy voice. O horrible, O dreadful state, those whom I love best, on whom I poured the beauties of my life, now I'll pour my fury on them. Now I'll reverse the precious benediction. For their colors of loveliness, I will give blackness, for jewels hoary frost, for ornament, deformity, for crowns, reed serpents, that they may curse and worship the obscure demon of destruction, that they may worship terrors and obey the violent. Go forth, sons of my curse, go forth, daughters of my abhorrence. The body of man is given to me, I seek in vain to destroy it. As a tree knows not what is outside of its leaves and bark, and yet it drinks the summer joy and fears the winter sorrow. His voice to them was but an inarticulate thunder, for the ears were heavy and dull and their eyes and nostrils closed up. He could not take their fetters off, for they grew from the soul, nor could he quench the fires 
for they flamed out from the heart, nor could he calm the elements because he himself was subject. So he threw his flight in terror and pain and in repentant tears. Swift, swift, from chaos to chaos, from void to void, a road immense, nor down nor up remained. If he turned and looked back from whence he came, was up with all. Oh, that's wonderful. I hope you. I hope you have a chance to finish it and and show it uh, in the silos near Houston. But it it's beautifully done. Thank you. Yeah, that's the first time we've done. That's the first performance of the the the, the uh, apocalyptic uh, lake that it, with the music with the proper music. So. We have a premiere, Corman. How do you like yeah, this that? This is a premiere, yeah. World premiere. Nick, it's been really a pleasure. It's great great to meet you this way. And, you know, I have to tell you, uh, Nick, this has been a really a highlight of me, uh, of my podcasting. And I'm just, I really enjoyed having you on here today. It's so great. We're coming to the end, I guess, huh? So this will... Yeah, well, we can still talk. But Stay <laughs> is the name of the book. 